Yeah, that's good. I am Jonathan Juanito Pascual, and this is All Strings Considered. Hey everyone, welcome back to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. Today I'll be introducing you to the flamenco guitar playing of my friend Juanito Pascual. Like so many American guitarists, Juanito Pascual's guitar journey began with a heavy dose of the electric guitar greats like Jimi Hendrix and Eric Clapton. He then progressed to jazz and was inevitably drawn to flamenco. With his upcoming release, Juanito Pascual's new flamenco trio, he comes full circle by bringing all those influences together. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories. And by audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com slash allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Today on All Strings Considered, Juanito talks about his progression through a variety of styles and about being an American in the flamenco tradition, which so often means comparing oneself to players who have been immersed in that tradition practically since birth. He also discusses his struggles with chronic hand problems, his new method book, and you'll get to hear an exclusive pre-release track from his album to be released this February. I'm not really sure. I mean, there's definitely no musicians in my family, and I'm probably just from the Muppet Show, or who knows what, just saw a guitar, you know, on TV, or, you know, hee-haw probably is what it was, I, I bet, you know, like... But anyway, I used to ask my mom periodically. I remember very clearly like being three and wanting a guitar, but we didn't have a guitar. Nobody in my family played guitar. Eventually, I met a guy, I met a kid when I was in sixth grade who's turned out had some guitars at his house, I found out when I went over. So he became, he's still a good friend of mine, his, he became, quote unquote, my first guitar teacher. I mean, he showed me a C chord. His dad played guitar and he was taking some lessons at that time. Uh-huh. And he showed me a C chord and like a D chord probably. Well, after I graduated NEC, somebody, I don't know, it must have been 25 or older. And that was in classical? My degree at NEC uh-huh. was contemporary improvisation. Oh, okay. So, so sometime well after I graduated from NEC, I was talking to my mom about it. She's like, you know, I just never thought there was anything to learn on guitar. I thought you just whip out a guitar at a party and play two or three, you know, strum a few chords. Yeah. That was why she used to kind of like sweep it under the rug, my requests, you know, she... So she never took it seriously, and thanks to this friend of mine, his his dad, you know, persuaded my mom, and because uh, I was obviously very interested in it, and they yeah. played guitar, so they're like, come on, get them some lessons. So thank God, you know, so that was when I was 12, and I took lessons at a music store in, in the Twin Cities, where I grew up in Minneapolis. So like a lot of guitarists, though, I have always loved kind of anything you can play on guitar, kind yeah. of indiscriminately, even, even yeah. you know, even if it's a style of music that I don't like normally or it's know yeah or know nothing about or, or both yeah. so from the earliest days i was always trying to just pick up whatever i could my first private teacher was this guy named cliff Suki, who was a real perfect fit for me in a lot of ways because he he had grown up playing rock but then got a degree in classical guitar so i went right i had this nylon string guitar that we rented and my first lesson he showed me like the E pentatonic minor blues scale uh-huh. and started me with the Frederick Node classical book. Playing, yeah. yeah. So literally from the get go, I had this multi thing going on in terms of genres. And it's um, exactly what I do with my seventh and eighth graders. Yeah. Go right from the blues scale to the Node book. Back yeah. And forth. Right. They don't, and they don't care. Yeah. They don't they know the difference. Yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> Anything is like, look at this chromatic finger exercise I learned today. Wow. I didn't use a pick at all for the first, I don't know eight or nine months that I played eventually later the end of seventh grade you know I played I got a Stratocaster at some point and I played a lot of electric guitar throughout all of high school but I always had this acoustic guitar and so anyway I had this you know like I said this kind of wide-ranging curiosity for anything you could play on guitar and was doing classical in ninth grade I started to learn I saturated myself with Hendrix tunes and I got really into the Grateful Dead and then from that I kind of got into jazz from the dead from improvisational stuff I found out like about John McLaughlin and in that early, like, 14, 15-year-old. And at the same time, in 10th grade, I met a kid in, in, uh, who now lives in L.A., actually, whose name is Mikhail Davies. And he he and I, were it was, we were assigned to sit next to each other in Spanish class. And it turns out his, his dad is a flamenco guitarist from the Twin Cities, and he was a guy like us. He got into guitar 
first as a kid playing, you know, rock and popular music and eventually discovered classical and then flamenco through classical. Mikhail, the kid who was my age, he became my first informal flamenco teacher. He showed me a rasciato and I was like, whoa. After that, we started hanging out like every day and jamming after school. And then we got these coffee shop gigs in 10th grade and we were gigging basically every weekend by the end of 10th grade. And I started taking lessons with his dad and his dad, who to this day goes to Spain every year. He was... He was like, go to Spain, you guys go to Spain. So we went to Spain the summer between 11th and 12th grade. I really liked it. And so senior year, I decided, you know what, I'm going to go back to Spain. And that's what I did after I graduated high school. I went back to Spain and, you know, it's kind of like, I'm, it seemed like a stretch, but I was like, you know what, I, this is what I'm drawn to. I'm going to give it a chance. That year in Spain after high school is when I like really got, got yeah, fully into it. That's when I studied with Adam and that's so when I met him. Yeah, the beginning of that trip, I traveled around. I was in Sevilla a bit and so on, but... Ended up in Madrid. Yeah, for the subway. You know, I needed a place. <laughs> I needed a subway to play. Yeah, so that's... So, by, you know, by the end of that year, I was playing every day, three, two, three, four hours a day in Amor de Dios in the dance classes. Uh -huh. So throughout the course of that year, I got to a point by the end of the year, I was, you know, making my money playing for dancers. Yeah, mm -hmm. re rehearsing with... Because I would play in the classes you know, for free as an apprentice, which was an amazing opportunity. I got to play with some really great, to learn and sit next to a number of really great players just in those yeah. classes. But so what would happen is as the year progressed, different dancers would come up to me and say, hey, can we, you know, will you rehearse with me outside of class? That's what they do. They'll learn the choreography in the class and then they need to practice it. So that was normal. They'd hire a guitarist. So I started getting those gigs on the side and, you know, didn't take too many of those to replace, you know, the, the meager tips I was getting in the subway. So, <laughs> so by the end of the, that trip, I was playing for dancers instead of playing in the subway. That year, I you know mm -hmm. practiced a lot and auditioned for a bunch of schools, including NEC. That's when I found out about NEC, actually. So switching gears for a moment, we're about to hear a couple of tunes from Juanito's album titled Language of the Heart, the first of which is a tangos titled Me Enamore, I Fell in Love. Juanito came to his interview with his wife, so I asked if that song was written with her in mind. Well, I think maybe the tangos uh -huh. is called Me Enamore, and... This is about this one? Yeah. It is? Well, retroactively. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> it is, exactly. Me Enamore and Llegó la Noche, that's the tangos and the bulerias. Uh -huh. They both feature this really amazing singer, Leo Trevino. He's a fantastic singer who I met originally in Boston. He came with... Nino and Isaac de los Reyes at one point, 10, 12 years ago, we did some shows together. Mm -hmm. So I knew him from that experience. And then, um, so when I was doing the CD, I was working with Nino. Nino's father lives in Boston, but Nino lives in Madrid. So Nino the, is a dancer and he did all, a lot of the palmas on the CD. Mm -hmm. So he, he helped me connect with Leo at the time I was doing the CD. And so Leo's on both of those. And he's just like a fantastic singer, really exceptional cantaor. And so that was really fun. Although the studio aspect of getting that stuff, I'm really happy with how it came out. It was really trying though in the studio. We had one day, I literally drove Leo from the recording studio to the airport so he could catch like a 5 a.m. flight. So we were up all night in the studio. We didn't have it that rehearsed because we had actually done a concert the day before in all different repertoire. So he came from Spain, he had like three days to prepare both the concert repertoire and some stuff for the studio but they were different. So we prepared this concert stuff first. Then we had the afternoon of the recording session to work on the recording stuff and went to the studio, stayed up all night, recorded, and then hit to the airport. And so, but it came out really well. In fact, you know, it's the kind of thing people hear their own voice and they're like, e. Leo was listening back and he's like, ole, you know. It's a, Even more. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> some, some of the stuff on there, especially in the tangos came out like really cool. So, so when it comes to a cantador, what, what is it that for you signifies a great singer? I think it's, you know, it's that ability, which is a little hard to define, but I feel like for me, it's not so much vocal timbre, but it's some way of penetrating. It's like somebody who can play your inner strings. You know, there's a vibration that gets in you that makes you feel something inside. And that has to do with intention, of course, your own connection to what you're feeling, obviously. Very much the same stuff that you'd feel, I think, playing music. And then vocal quality, of course, or how they translate, what they're feeling, how it's translated through their vocal cords. I don't tend to prefer one quality of voice over the other. In fact, in general, I feel like probably more than a lot of people, I seem to be very open to different qualities. I can like the most harsh and almost, you know, undecipherable pitch variation, you know, that end of the cantor spectrum where there's uh -huh. like, you know, these old timers who can barely get a note out, but it's uh -huh. just so 
so juicy with feeling visceral yeah. yeah and then some of the lighter singers which you know there's you know a sort of trend these days and there's some old cantores it's almost sort of more like a bell 30s and 40s yeah, yeah and then but it's coming back you know it's like arcangel and Estrella morente sort of has some lighter elements in her singing just so you can hear a little bit of both here's a little bit of the amazing manuel agujetas contrasted with the more smooth modern style of estrella morente Ay! That seems to be the common denominator is how they use the, you know, use what they have. I mean, I've seen some some interesting examples of singers being resourceful. Maybe they don't have the most obviously amazing flamenco, overtly flamenco type voice, but they're creative in how they get the intensity through, even if their voice may not immediately suggest that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Leo has the rasp, that combination of very musical, but but a certain roughness in his voice. It's that uh, creativity, the, the expressiveness, and obviously depth of knowledge of the cante and the ability to get into the feeling of whatever they're singing. Of course, for the more up-tempo cantes, some of these people have like amazing compas and just make you move, you know, and, and that's actually something that I think about a lot with singing. I remember one time listening to, it was very much specifically listening to Camarón where I was listening with the headphones and I really realized, wow, the singing is like, is like a drummer. He's like slamming the rhythm, you know, he's like really creating the subdivisions and the, the oh. groove with the placement of the hard and soft sounds and the singing is like, wow. Yeah. You know, if you would take everything else away, there would still be this amazing grooving thing left, which is his singing. It's yeah. like, okay, he's not like floating over the top. It's which the opposite. The, the sort of way that we feel it is like it's floating on top. Yeah. So that's another thing is singers who have really great, like yeah. some of the Jerez guys too, like El Torta and Capullo de Jerez. Those are mm-hmm. some guys who I really like who have really Phenomenal rhythm, yeah. <laughs> Let's hear Juanito's tangos, titled Me Enamore, and a buleria from that same album titled Llegó la Noche. Both tunes feature the singing of Leo Trivino, and we'll hear a little bit more about that buleria after you have a chance to hear it.
A lot of times the way I wind up writing these pieces is very independently. At some point I'll notice I have three or four things that I like and decide I'm going to finish this, you know, so, so then I start filling in the gaps. And so in this case, there's a little refrain, which I actually was something I came up with on the guitar, but then... And Leo sings it or something? Yeah, and it's like, and then have like a, this uh, friend of mine, Barbara Martinez, who's a singer and dancer who lives in New York, she, um, she's doing some backing vocals on that as well. A little, like a chorus, you know, a repeating thing. But that was something I came up with first on guitar initially and, and always thought, well, that would make a good chorus. So, so I eventually got around to making it into a song. And, you know, basically there's, you know, a big chunk of instrumental and then the singing part. Uh -huh. sort of the second half of the piece. That's what happened. I had that little, the kind of the refrain and one or two other little ideas and I decided time had come, I'm gonna forge this into a piece. So honestly, for me, a lot of times what I do is I see what I have and then I kind of say, I wanna make a piece that's about five minutes or about six minutes or about three, whatever. Uh -huh. And that helps me to start of like- Constrain it. Yeah, so, sort so. of then the ideas start to, to fill in. In this case too, it was interesting, you know, I just decided I was going to have the second half of the piece. It's almost like two pieces because there's the mm. instrumental section and then the second half is vocal. So the first half leads up to that refrain uh -huh. played by just the guitar and then the second half, the singing leads to the refrain. So oh. that's a little bit of a continuity. And then, yeah. you know, it sort of starts a little bit atmospherically and it ends atmospherically, although mm -hmm. differently. So. I think of flamenco a lot, you know, in a way as the compas in flamenco is sort of, it's like a stream. It's kind of like a radio station. It's something that's always there and you can tune into it or not. Uh -huh. So I think when I think of like getting in the feel of a palo or, you know, one of the, like a tango's groove or buleria groove, you know, it's like, I noticed a lot of artists, Vicente Amigo is an obvious example of somebody who starts a lot of his pieces with just sort of the it's muted amazing. strings or just the just percussion uh -huh. and it's like kind of getting you into that pulse before then setting the the first notes floating them on that pulse that's been uh -huh. established that's something that resonates with me a lot in this case the idea is sort of like it's there and you you ease into it and then you ease out but it's it's almost like it exists independently yeah yeah Mm -hmm. always has this light kind of almost playful thing. Mm -hmm. Does this one, do you feel has that same thing? Or? The, the letra, night has come, you know, in Spanish, I translated into English, it says, night has come and, you know, let's go sing and dance. Like, that's how we pray. Our form of prayer is singing and dancing and night has come, so that's when we can do it. So it's kind of like, oh, nice. you know, inverting the normal thing. You get up in the morning and go pray. You know, if, you know this, is our, this is our way of connecting and it happens at night. Yeah. The, the, yeah. The, the, the spirit, the the spirit yeah. moves us, you know. Uh -huh. So, so yeah, there's definitely a drive. I mean, I would say in that buleria, I, I, there's, you know, kind of a, some atmospheric sections. There's a section that kind of returns. It starts the piece and returns at the end. Mm. And, you know, it's sort of this atmospheric thing, which is meant to be a little bit different than a standard. The pulse is going on all the time, but there's a... Free feeling. Yeah. It's specifically because it's not often done and it creates a, an opportunity to then really slam back into the rhythm when it comes. And what's the uh, instrumentation on this one? There's guitar, cajon, palmas, and then singing. Those are the primary things, but then there's some auxiliary percussion. There's some udu and some shakers here and there. I and love so. the sound of udu. And then I is actually- it exposed in there or is it kind of in the back of the mix? Or? It comes out in the atmospheric section and then uh -huh. def definitely also did the special ingredient there was the singing bowl. <laughs> oh. You know what those are? You Well, you run a stick Good. around the rim of the bowl and it creates like a kind of like an oming sound, you know? Yeah, so that was fun. <laughs> Okay, so tell me about the older album. What's the one tune that you can still stand? Yeah. Well, uh, Soleares del Monte, you uh -huh. know, is a piece that I composed probably like a lot of these pieces over a period of time. You know, I got some, you know, different falsettas that eventually crystallized into a composition. But that piece, Soleares del Monte, I, I thought it was incredibly appropriate to name a piece, a dedicated piece. In this case, kind of both to Adam and Dino del Monte, Adam being the son and Dino being the father. Okay. I studied with Adam in Madrid in 1992, and that was really pivotal for me. He really um, 
That was a time in my life when I was ready for a level of learning that I hadn't experienced before. Mm. I had been in Madrid at that time for seven months or eight months, and, and I started studying with him. I felt like I had kind of prepared myself for that, and then he was incredibly generous with his teaching, and there was a real connection there on a lot of levels, just personal, and uh, you know, I was making my way at that time playing in the subway. Yeah, that's how I was able to hang out so long, and he, he right. totally gave me like an unbelievably good price. Like, you know, uh -huh. I, I couldn't have afforded to study with him at his normal price and I couldn't have really afforded anybody's subway normal rate. price. So yeah, he gave me the subway rate and it helped him. He had his young twins at that time. So, you know, it was it was symbiotic. And But like mostly it was just, he was really generous with his teaching. But in particular, he was encouraging me to write my own music and sort of mm -hmm. use Solea, use the, the, that form to mm -hmm. sort of give me composition instruction. And not only instruction, but like, you know, next week when you come for your lesson, take these few notes that I'm giving you and then finish it, you know, and come oh, back. Nice. So that kind of thing. And he sort of, he just kind of encouraged me and, you know, sort of gave me permission, you know, as it were, like, it's okay, do your own thing. And, and, here's, yeah. and kind of here's how you do it. Uh -huh. And so, so that was really the form in which he did that. And then, so, well, 1999, I spent a long time in Madrid as well. And I spent a lot of time with his dad. By that time, Adam was in LA already, but I ran into his dad and I said, Hey, I know, I know your son, and he's like, oh, so he really kind of took me under his wing, and mm -hmm. and I started, he started showing me a lot of things, and he taught me he's actually, he he played, um, now he plays a little bit. I mean, his main instrument is actually the cymbal, which is like a kind of a dulcimer type instrument. It's oh. like you know, it's a hammer, hammered uh -huh. instrument that's used a lot in Romania. I mean, he's from Romania, so he plays the cymbal, but. He got to Spain because he, when he was like 20, he was really into flamenco, and he he's, he lives in Spain. He's lived there for decades, and uh, he was a very serious flamenco guitarist at one point, and kind of shifted more into the cymbal. He was very kind, very like a mentor in a way. I didn't really take formal lessons with him, but I hung out with him a lot. And we played together. He showed me some of his music, and he would play cymbal. And he has he's he's done a lot of different permutations of an ensemble where he'll have. He was showing me some of the parts, and we we played and. Train. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so Dino was really an important mentor for me and, and also used specifically Soleares as, as a form to explain some nice and interesting and important things about flamenco and so I thought really neat to to write a piece that sort of acknowledges both of them and coincidentally or otherwise that they both use Solea to share some really interesting important things with me. So so anyway, Soleares del Monte is a piece that I can see very clearly how I got from what I learned from them to what came out in that composition. And at the same time, it's really it, exactly what Adam intended, which is like a great gift, which is to help put me on my own path of, of writing my own music, which is always one of the main things that appealed to me about flamenco and, and appeals to me about flamenco is that the player is, you know, at the very least encouraged, if not expected, to come up with their own stuff. You know, at the very least, put your own spin on something, but right. but ideally write your own music. And that always kind of suited my temperament. I've always, you know, noodled around and come up with stuff. To find a style of music where that was such a basic value, it was always really resonant for me, you know. So, so here's Soleares del Monte, John's homage to Dino and Adam del Monte. This recording is from John's album titled Cosas en Común, which can be loosely translated as Things in Common. Thank you. 
20 is when I started NEC and then did, you know, four years. One of the things I loved about it was the ability to split your studio time. So I studied, you know, half time for two and a half years, I guess. I studied half time with, uh, first with David Leisner and then with Elliot at my last year, which was great. I mean, that was amazing. And that was helpful because I had these hand issues. The reason I started studying with David was because, funnily enough, he was right there at school, but I read about him in a magazine first that he had cured himself of a hand problem, this focal dystonia. Yeah, which is really scary. Yeah, it's really scary. So I didn't have that problem per se, but I had some other issues which were essentially tissue damage from playing way too much with way too much tension. Uh That's the very short version of the story. But Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I had to stop when I was 20. Actually, when I arrived at NEC, I actually couldn't play. It was six months where I didn't play at all. Oh, man. And um, the good thing about that was that in the Contemporary Improvisation program, the first year, but in particular the first semester, you're mostly listening, actually, and, ah. and memorizing. You're, like, developing your ear. Mm. They don't really want you to put stuff on the instrument at first. They're really focusing. So that kind of worked. I did my first semester at NEC and then actually went back home for a semester because I, I couldn't play. How did you overcome it? Did it just go so, away? Well, it's, you know, actually, I mean, it's been the defining thing of my life, really. I mean, I'm 40 now, and that happened when I was 20. So the last 20 years have been totally to say the least, like totally informed by the outcome of, you know, dealing with that injury. Or it's been an unbelievably ongoing and very surprising process. Just my own patience, like inner crevices. I mean, like, Uh you know, patience, examining, like what are going on inside that's pushing me to do these things that are hurting me and stuff. You know, it's like, Uh it was like, instead of just like what I want to do, which is just play guitar, (laughs) you know, it's like, you know, I've had to really stand back on and off. I mean, thankfully, it's been very stable for the last, 12 or 13 years, but Mm. pretty much for the first seven or eight years, I would intermittently kind of overdo it again and have to back off. The first stuff that I really did that helped was I worked first with a guy who does Feldenkrais method, which is a body awareness system, Mm. which is similar in some ways. I mean, they probably disagree, but to Alexander Technique. So the next thing I really did was Alexander Technique because that's what I had access to. I worked with a really good Feldenkrais person in Boston Mm -hmm. and then went to Minneapolis and there was no experienced Feldenkrais person. So I went and worked with a Alexander teacher. And those things really helped a lot, Mm. combined with not playing for six months. I mean, I let the tissues just kind of heal, but that was incredibly instructive in a lot of different ways. And then from there, the next really big things that helped were uh, working with David Leisner. Through the Alexander Technique and through taking some time off, I was able to get back to where I was playing. Mm-hmm. And then at that time, I went back to school and, and started studying with David. Is there anything that stuck with you from him that you just, you know, you hear in your mind every time you sit down to practice? Well, you know, yes, but I uh, let me fast forward real quick and I'll uh-huh. go back to that, which is that after that, I studied with Grisha Goryachev's Dima. And so that was an amazing continuity. I feel like what I learned from David fed very nicely into what I learned from Dima. So I think of what I learned is more relating to, to my work with Dima. Uh-huh. But what Dima did wouldn't have worked the way it did if I hadn't worked with David first. Uh-huh. I feel like the real message from David was working with the weight, the weight of the whole forearm. Uh-huh. And, you know, using larger muscles that are more up in the, in the shoulder area to work the weight of the forearm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that message is constantly with me. Dima talked to me a lot about much more finer movement in the fingertips. Uh. So I was able to really think about that fingertip movement with the idea of all that weight from the arm. Uh. So I feel both of those constantly. I really uh-huh. integrated the two uh-huh. approaches in my own teaching. And so and I did all this body work. I did eight years of body work with the person in Boston whom you may know, Catherine Larger Kaplan, uh-huh. whose husband is a classical guitarist, Aaron Larger Kaplan. So I worked regularly with for eight years i mean i still do the the work on my own i do the yoga and transforming my that's why as i mentioned the ongoing thing is like transforming my relationship with my body completely um which is slow it's like rewiring the nervous system while except for the initial six months that i mentioned you know essentially still doing the activity Mm -hmm. you know it's a trip to keep playing while you're also trying to rewire yourself another big huge influence on me is this book by this jazz pianist Kenny Werner called Effortless Mastery, which I may have talked to you about. I don't know if I ever, yeah. So I consider myself a disciple of that as well. Kenny Werner's Mm -hmm. book, Effortless Mastery. I probably think I have a copy with me on this trip. I haven't read it for a while, but something that you open it up and it's like, oh yeah, that's that's right. That's a good, good thing to remember. You know, I've definitely chosen to see the positive side. On the one hand, it's like kind of annoying to, to be stopped so many times, you know, and have to re-examine. Mm-hmm. But it actually been an incredible 
process. And I would say every single little thing that I've encountered that's been connected to any of these hand issues, conversely, as I've worked through them, was directly correlated to some improvement in the music. Mm-hmm. You know, there's like a total direct correlation, in other words, between the things that were related to the injury and things that were problematic in the music. In other words, you can sort of hear the hand problems. And wow. like, I, I hear these old tapes, like from before I had to stop, like when I was 18, 19, it's like, ooh, like I can hear, I was like physically cringing to hear some of the stuff that was happening because I was like, oh yeah, that's, that sound was totally related to the energy wow. that was, could contribute to getting injured, you know? So, yeah. Working these things out has been very gradual. You know, flamenco is a very, it's a large mountain yeah, (laughs) to climb, you know. And and so being really properly patient with that, when you feel like you're behind because you weren't born doing it, Mm -hmm. that energy, those those kind of things, I had to really let go of a lot of that kind of thinking like, oh, I'm going to try to catch up. So that seems like a nice segue into that talk that you gave me when I was sitting with you. Mm Mm-hmm about approaching it that way yeah so i feel like you know one of the lessons when i was you know that age 20 21 22 around right around the time of this hand problem one of the things that i noticed and that really became a kind of a really guiding principle for me in my own self teaching process noticing that babies in spain who grew up around this they're not analyzing it they're not trying to figure out if this is in 44 or 128 they're not thinking about it. They're just absorbing it. I remember seeing some really poignant examples of babies, you know, sitting on somebody's lap. Their person has their arms around the baby doing palmas, you know. So the baby's head is like eight inches from the palmas. And the baby's just like zoning out. And then realizing those same babies, by the time they're three, four, five, certainly six or seven, are like slamming. These kids got it coming out of their pores by the time they're five or six. And I realized, like, wow, that's what it is. It's like creating an environment for yourself where you can absorb it. And I also realized kind of around the same time that you totally interfere. You can interfere with the absorption of, of any music by trying to participate with it. So I like one of the things that I did was like the flamenco baby, like literally spent a lot of time. Some of this I actually got from Rand Blake at New England Conservatory, who taught us all about listening like in the dark, kind of go into a kind of a meditation or just a very neutral state uh-huh. and just have the music on and make it part of a daily thing where sit at night or sometimes just like sit on the floor and just play the music. I would find things that I really liked, like things like if I sounded like that, I'd be pretty happy, things like that. And then play them again and again, like have a small playlist of things that I really loved uh-huh. and felt like embodied what I really love about the music. Uh-huh. And I would make a playlist of those and play them again and again every day. Having that image of the baby, totally judgment-free. Just trust that if you hear this for three or four years every day, it's going to get inside you somehow. Yeah. And that's when it really ha- happens magically. It was like it's inside you and then it just has to get out. It's not you thinking, what is it? What is it? I'm trying to do it. But rather, it's just in you and then it has to get out. So I, I decided to bite the bullet a little bit, as it were, and just trust. You know what? If I do this for five years or ten years, it's going to be a lot better than if I don't do it. Time is going to pass either way, so do I want to have those drops in the bucket every day that yeah. kind of gradually accumulate yeah. or not, you know? So so that was something, because I just realized, you know, I've been doing this for five years, and I just like it more and more every day. So I can only assume that in another five years, I'm going to feel the same. So I just decided, you know what, I'd rather have those five years be filled with the the, right the, input. That was a huge thing for me, and so that's uh, certainly... Me a lot. Oh, that's good, yeah, and thank you for, for mentioning that, because that's really glad to hear it, and it's definitely something I try to keep reminding myself, you know, it's, it's a powerful tool, and I really, I could say I got that basically from, from Rand Blake. I remember the one you had me do that I did actually pretty pretty religiously was that 30-minute Lydia on the Los Tejedes. Oh, cool. Yeah. Every day in the car. It was like, okay, I'm going to get through this one first, and then I'll listen to something else. Eventually, this stuff just kind of pops out. I don't know why I know that sounds right, but I know that sounds right. Cool. Because it's that language thing, right? We don't speak thinking about the grammar. It just comes out sounding right, or it sounds wrong. Yeah. The grammar. Yeah, absolutely. And did you ever, did you find, like, for example, you'd start to know that thing's about to come up? Yeah. For example, you're like, yeah. like, that's really cool, like that, when that, like, that kind of thing starts to happen. Yeah, and like, you start oh. to hear, yeah, oh, oh, you need a period there. Yeah, right. right? Like, there. One of the things that, about that particular Buddha, because again, like, 
I, and I got that suggestion was from Timo Lozano, was into that buleria. That's how I found out about it. And he, um, and I used to play in his bulerias class. Like in Madrid, I played in his class for six months, first for an hour a day, and then it got popular, so he added a second hour. Uh-huh. So after two months, I was playing a second hour every day. And that was, that was super key, like to be able to play the hour and then two hours every day of just buleria. I mean, yeah. that, that was huge. But he was, even then, who was teaching the class, he was, I guess, into listening to that. But one of the things I remember, which is just kind of a side note, amu- amusing here on things, but just that after listening to that enough times, I started to notice, man, he never plays a compas exactly the same twice. Even if it's the same sequence yeah. of, of, you know, it's not like he was doing infinite variations. He was, you know, was a certain pretty much. Consistency. Yeah, there's a certain, you can definitely point to compasses that were the same sequence of, of strokes, uh-huh. but the lightness or hardness was always different. Uh, and it's like never quite the same and then like always in service of the groove it's like trippy man wow like that was one of the like really cool hmm. lessons that i noticed that emerged from that fog after you know listening to it a like hundred or two hundred times it's like yeah. wow you know like every little moment was something you know it was, yeah. it was important and like the spaces were important and the intensity a golpe that was a little soft or a little hard mm. it all was like contributing it was not just like going John's latest album, called Juanito Pascual New Flamenco Trio, has a much stronger focus on improvisation and draws more heavily on his jazz and rock roots. Improv. So I grew up, the first thing my private teacher said, I took that group lesson, but then I started with this guy, Cliff, I mentioned. Cliff's like, so what do you like? <laughs> he used to drink like 18 cups of coffee a day. So he's like, hey, so what do you like? <laughs> so I was like, well, I like Jimi Hendrix. Maybe mention Cream or something. I listened to a few things. Like, the first thing he said was like, okay, great. We have to teach you how to improvise then. And I knew that word, the only reason I knew that word is because I was into acting a little bit before that. Like in elementary school, I did some acting and we did improvisation exercises. So that was how I heard the word improvisation first. And so I kind of knew the word and he's like, we teach you how to improvise. So, you know, like kids are, I was like, okay. You know, I had no bias. I had no fear whatsoever. And my only experience with, thus far with improvisation was a positive association. So, uh, so the very first thing he showed me was this, you know, blues scale, pentatonic scale. And just just told me to jump in like you know i think the first lesson and just like said play those notes however you want <laughs> okay that was a really uh an excellent entree into the whole thing because i just was it made it all seem very normal very quickly you know i was learning from the classical book but i was also learning like hendrix tunes like hey joe and stuff where i could take solos so that was really my background with improvisation not a whole lot of structure, but just sort of being given the go-ahead to do it. And so, okay, and given some basic tools to start doing it. You know, I learned almost all Hendrix's recorded tunes. And then I learned, you know, at one point I probably knew like 80 Grateful Dead songs. The stuff that I really imprinted on was in 10th grade when I became friends with Mikhail, I listened to this, you know, Paco's live one summer night recording, the sextet, Paco de Lucia sextet recorded in 1984 in a concert in southern france and to me that was like that's it unbelievable like you know it's flamenco but it's jazz you know there's improvisation but it's like played on a flamenco guitar yeah it's unbelievable it's and it's the sextet is like carlos benavent and jorge pardo and ruben dantas and his brother pepe and his brother ramon de algeciras playing guitar and so to me from the get-go the the thing seemed to be like and in terms of the flamenco I was learning a little bit of and playing with my friend and his dad was take a little bit of inspiration from that and mix it into what I already do. Some kind of style mishmash of, you know, I had an on string guitar and played with my fingers, but it was some blues, some jazz, some whatever, and then throw some flamenco touches in there. That was sort of the, uh-huh. the idea at first. And then, you know, I went to Spain, became increasingly clear to me that this was a very defined language. And then... The trip later, that's when I like really realized like, wow, you know, you can do a Roscato 500 times and it still doesn't sound good. I mean, it took me 10 years really, I feel like, to get a Roscato that really sounded like something like what I was hearing. So on the one hand, I really did jump 
kind of all the way headlong into the tradition of flamenco, which obviously doesn't have a strong improvisational component. But on the other hand, you know, my informative experience of playing music is is from, like I said, that first lesson. I was like, yeah, improvise. So, so for me, you know, I would say in many ways my journey and certainly my reason for going to New England Conservatory and doing the contemporary improvisation program was, wow, wouldn't it be cool to do a style that is kind of simultaneously, yeah, all at once. And I mean, and that was the thing about that program, sort of the way they describe what, what, like, what is that program? The idea is the creation of a personal style blending two or more styles. That's sort of the, the, in a nutshell, description of what that's about. They were really encouraging people who wanted to find their own voice by blending different influences. And that's still in existence. Yeah, yeah, and that's, it just celebrated its 40th year last year, actually. You know, that seemed like right up my alley. They didn't teach flamenco there, but they were completely open to somebody like me who brought something to the table like that. And so from them, I learned, worked with jazz and worked with classical and worked with world music, other world music traditions that they offered. But meanwhile, I was sort of the the curator of my flamenco side. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's always been the vision. Like, in other words, like I saw the Spanish guys, obviously Paco de Lucia kind of in the forefront of that whole movement. But when I went to Spain, realizing that it was the norm, all these, you know, guys that I was seeing were very fervently, you know, seeking to to expand their flamenco language in large part by incorporating American elements, you know, mm-hmm. jazz and blues and rock and you name it. At that time, and much, you know, not to mention now, but at that time, you could pretty much by the late 90s, you could say you could probably find some example of flamenco being blended with just about anything. B.B. King played with Raimundo Amador. I mean, they have a recording. with So it's like, that was a really happening time for that i mean it's still going on but i feel like that really made sense to me and i thought well wouldn't it be cool i can be the american guy who's bringing all that experience playing flamenco through that versus playing jazz through the flamenco lens so i always thought of representing the flip side of what i was seeing with Mm -hmm. the spanish guys Mm -hmm. but in any case certainly requiring some level in flamenco which i didn't at the time realize what i was getting myself into you know (laughs) yeah yeah just to do one thing right takes you know like full dedication for 10 or 15 years so basically my whole 20s were focused on flamenco primarily although the short version of what i'm doing now i have this trio and i feel like that's 25 years later it's coming full circle like kind of the thing that i envisioned you know my hendrix cream you know early imprint now coming all the way back around and doing that format which is like a trio you know it's it's percussion hand percussion and acoustic bass and guitar uh-huh. but really without thinking about it too much just playing you know but playing but is it within like a flamenco yeah i definitely the the backdrop is totally flamenco i feel like all the pieces we play are in one form or other in a flamenco rhythm and so probably the common denominator and why I was calling it the Juanito Pascual New Flamenco Trio. What anchors it in flamenco is that all the pieces are using flamenco rhythms. So, you know, and even interestingly in Spain, you'll see a lot, a lot of the flamenco guys these days are doing stuff where they'll do something in seven or they'll do something in 13, mm-hmm. eight mm-hmm. instead of just 12. So, you know, we're definitely doing some mixed meter stuff, uh-huh. but... You know, that's a whole other thing. Basically, we're playing, everything is in flamenco meters, tangos, rumba, bulerias. And then the whole idea of improvising on the guitar, being able to channel your ideas in real time through your instrument. Right. But with a flamenco technique. That always seemed so exciting to me. Like, because I found flamenco guitar technique so exciting and improvising is so exciting. Like, wouldn't it be, that's why you see like jazz players, for example, you know, they play like single note runs or chord solos. Like, that's about it. But the idea of being able to improvise with rascado and alzapua and picado and tremolo and, and golpes and, you know, mm-hmm. the stuff that we do as flamenco guitarists, you know, that's why I was like, I had this like sort of 20 year hiatus where I like, first I have to learn all that crap. <laughs> In that sense, it's been an amazing journey because I wound up getting all the way into the whole thing, playing with singers and playing with dancers. I mean, that was my focus for at least 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, something that I continue to do, obviously, it's an important part of what I do. On the other hand, at the same time, it served as a training ground for the development and maturation of this language of sound from the instrument the question of how do you improvise with that like that's clearly at this point to me like a never-ending 
journey mm -hmm. of which I feel like I'm very much at the beginning. Yeah. So in terms of this trio, like we're just finishing our CD, our first recording. Tupac Mantia is the percussionist. Brad Barrett is the bass player. Mm -hmm. And uh, Brad's at NEC right now finishing up a DMA, actually. And, mm -hmm. and so he's, he's you know, has a background in classical jazz world music. Flamenco is new to him through this project, but he's you know he's been great, mm -hmm. and uh, and Tupac has played some flamenco before, mm -hmm. but he's uh you know he's from Colombia and he's his background is very strong with Latin music. Juanito also now has a new flamenco method book published by Alfred, which is part of the Total Guitarist series. There are links to check out the new book, along with a bunch of YouTube videos and other goodies on John's website, JuanitoPascual.com. The Juanito Pascual New Flamenco Trio will be released on February 15th at the Sanders Theater in Cambridge. So definitely check it out if you're going to be in the Boston area around then. John was also kind enough to send me a track to share with you from that album, ahead of the official release. But before I leave you with that last work, let me just say thanks for listening to All Strings Considered. I'm your host, Scott Wolf. All Strings Considered is brought to you in part by Guitar Salon International, the world's largest selection of fine classical and flamenco guitars and accessories, and by Audible.com. To get a free audiobook of your choice, go to audibletrial.com allstrings. There are over 100,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Now, just a quick disclaimer, there have been some issues updating the list of episodes for All Strings Considered on iTunes. Even though you won't currently see new episodes in iTunes, if you're subscribed to the podcast, episodes will continue to arrive on your various devices normally. Or if all else fails, just head over to scottwolfguitar.com slash podcast. They'll always be there. Okay, this tune is called Costa Brava. Juanito describes it as a fast Roomba which eventually goes into a bulerias with a little bit of tanguillo thrown in. Until next time, enjoy the music.
Hey bud, you gonna be Brad or you gonna be cool? <laughs> okay, that's all you get. <laughs>